This podcast is sponsored by Traction Capital Partners, a private investment firm based out of Tacoma, Washington. Traction Capital focuses on acquiring businesses based in the Pacific Northwest that have between $1 and $5 million in earnings. For more information, please visit TractionCP.com. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run companies. For more information, visit alexbridgman.com. My guest on this episode is Will Schoberlein. Will started his career in investment banking and private equity before taking a leap to Southeast Asia to work on startups and software. He finished his time in Asia and Japan, where he met his wife and has since developed a small company acquisition thesis on the Japanese market. In this episode, we discuss his thoughts around investing in private companies, acquiring companies in the US and Japan, aging Japanese business owners and what that means for their economy, IPOing in Japan, and our shared use of Twitter. Hope you enjoy. Before I dive into the details, though, I would like to first thank you for having me on today. I really do appreciate the opportunity. So I think my, my, my early career, my background started out rather traditionally. Very early on, though, I veered off to the left, you could say. Um, but I graduated from Georgetown uh, immediately after college, headed up to Wall Street, where I spent a total of four, four and a half years or so. First two years were at Perella Weinberg Partners, a boutique M&A and restructuring firm, generally working with Fortune 500 um, companies. Uh, it was a young firm when I joined. I, I, I really liked that aspect about it. It was very entrepreneurial. But quickly found that over those two years, again, it was a fantastic experience, but uh, was looking for something a little bit different than what banking was offering and really wanted to get to the buy side. Uh, private equity seemed most interesting to me as I could really get inside of companies. Um, at least that's what I thought at the time and uh, decided to join another very young entrepreneurial firm called Dominus Capital. I was the only associate during uh, my time there, primarily played in the lower middle market. Uh, you know, family-owned companies in the Midwest and the like, $5 million EBITDA up to say $20, $25 million of EBITDA. Also a great experience, awesome colleagues, but found after my two years there that I was also, you know, yearning for something more. I wanted to be a little more entrepreneurial. I wanted to explore something a little different. I felt a little trapped by the Wall Street bubble, if you will. So after my four years in Wall Street, I, you know, again, was looking at, do I go to business school? Probably don't want to stay here. Do I try a startup? What do I do? Long story short, decided actually to move over to Asia, specifically Southeast Asia. I had uh, studied abroad in Australia during college. I traveled through Asia Asia a bunch when I was younger. So I was very aware of the cultures uh, uh, in the region, how it was like, the food, the people, the opportunities, and was just really captivated by the growth um, and how different it was. And again, what I felt were the potential opportunities for someone young, energetic, and eager to you know explore the world, explore myself in a lot of different ways. I ended up spending around four or five years over in Asia. Uh, you could say it was split up into three parts. First part was me attempting to uh, build a startup with a bunch of colleagues. I won't go into all the details, but we tried building an SMB lending startup. Um, that was you know, a, a effectively not a digital bank, but a digital lender. So we'd take all these disparate data points, um, not just financial and operational, but like where is the SMB owner signing in, uh, what type of device, um, what time of day, and try to cr- trying to credit score these businesses. There's... I'm sure many of you have heard of startups out there today doing this very, very successfully. We attempted to do this, um, I think, naively so in a lot of ways and hit walls left and right and ultimately failed. But I learned a ton and met some really great friends in that process. I'd say the second third of my time over in Asia was spent building what is now called Golden Southeast. And I, should, and I shouldn't necessarily say building. Um, we were and still are to a degree an informal group of individuals really 
chasing and attacking a lot of different unique esoteric opportunities. Uh, we were active in and quite successful in land lending in Koh Samui, for example, which is an island off the coast of Thailand. Uh, we explored self-storage, which was which was and arguably still is a nascent industry in Southeast Asia. Obviously, we're digging in various startup concepts um, and also deeply explored search funds in Southeast Asia. I also looked at surf, search funds quite deeply during my time in private equity as well. So I was very familiar with that model before coming to Asia. The last part of my time um, in Asia, I, I would say I spent most of it in the public equity space. So looking at stocks, frankly, globally, but increasingly, particularly near the end of my time there in Japan. So I was able to spend a ton of time in Japan the last year, year and a half, literally every other week up there, um, which was, a you know, it, it's not was, it is a very fascinating country, uh, amazing people, beautiful culture, interesting economy, um, and even more interesting business and investing opportunities if you sort of lift up the hood and look underneath. I'll touch on this a little bit later, but I'll also note that I was fortunate uh, to have met my now wife while I was over in Japan. So uh, Japan is very close to me personally and professionally these days, um, though I have to admit my Japanese is probably still at a first grade or maybe second grader uh, level, uh, slowly improving, but uh, definitely not uh, anywhere near fluent at this point. So after my you know four or five years in Asia, I felt that I had explored a lot, met a lot of interesting people, but it was, you could argue, very much the Wild West in terms of what I was being exposed to and the skills I was learning. Um, very valuable, but again, I was I think I was looking for some more structure um, and decided to come back to the U.S. and wanted to get actually inside of businesses, specifically small businesses, and more specifically, I targeted private equity-backed SaaS companies. So the past several years, I've been really active within strategy, corporate development, operations roles within, again, these smaller SaaS businesses growing 30, 40% a year, um, 100 or so employees. And it's really shown me, you know, I previously was looking from the outside in on companies, looking at balance sheets, looking at strategies, board decks. And now I'm actually sitting inside a business during this time period, understanding, well, what actually needs to happen to make these, uh, you know, targets, uh, these financial metrics and all, um, you know, to hit the goals that we're seeking, to drive the value, to, to, to hire the right people. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's been absolutely eye-opening um, and I think has informed a lot about uh, the model, the concept that we're looking to launch here in the small business space, which again, I'll touch on here uh, shortly. But I would say that's the quick and dirty on my winding background from DC to New York, over to Asia, and ultimately back to DC where I sit today. How have you worked your way to a greater focus on the private and then not to jump too far in, but the small business side? So before diving into the specifics around our SMB acquisition concept, I think it makes sense to first talk about how we think about investing more broadly. Generally speaking, the markets today are incredibly competitive. And I'm talking more generally around you know conventional assets, say private equity, venture capital, real estate, public equities. Everyone is smart. Everyone's using the same tools. You know, everyone's thinking generally the same way. It's a battle for alpha. And it's critical for you to understand what is your edge and is it sustainable and how can you grow it, improve it, um, expand it. I think it's also worth noting that when you're looking at investments, focusing on the upside is absolutely exciting and it's interesting and you know it's worth looking at, obviously, but it's not very productive. So where I tend to naturally look is, well, what's the downside? How do I optimize around the downside? Um, and ask the question of, you know, of all the assumptions I'm making, which are, which is the most important and what needs to be true for the deal or deals to work. And I'm, I want to minimize those assumptions to optimally zero. That perhaps isn't realistic, but my goal is to chop down those 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 assumptions 
uh, to where, in my view, risk is then minimized. The probable range of outcomes is minimized. Stepping back though, again, like, so where, where do I, where do I look in the competitive market landscape to sort of find my edge? Where, where do I compete? Um, and to me, I've sort of, as I've grown in my career, I naturally start turning to and looking at and getting very excited about markets that are overlooked, markets that are ignored, um, and not frankly, even just off the beat, beaten path, but like ideally a completely other curve, uh, to where I'm even building an entirely new curve, if you will. Um, it's not to suggest that, um, these are the, Op, these esoteric opportunities are the only type of opportunities I look at or, or invest in. Um, I don't. But again, these are the ones that I find most exciting. So for example, land lending in Koh Samui, an extremely unique niche asset. You need to have you know local know-how. You need to be on the ground. Um, the returns are you know, 20, 30% IRRs, uh, like high, high return, very, very low competition fascinating um, opportunities where you need to build an entity, build uh, uh, a, a, a business in a lot of ways to mechanize the opportunity. So thinking about creative strategies, vehicles and the like within these overlooked niche markets, um, that to me is just intrinsically fascinating um, and where I love to just spend my time thinking. Um, but again, I'm not suggesting it's the only spot where I play. It's just, it jumps out to me and I'm naturally curious about those type of uh, situations. I do want to make clear, however, before we dive into the meat of things, that we are not in the market today executing upon this thesis. We are actively socializing this concept with a lot of interested parties, potential investors, peers, and the like. Um, but we are still very much in the early phases. And I think a, a large reason for that, quite frankly, is not so much around you know what exactly we're proposing or how we're proposing we execute. Uh, I'm sure around the edges, we'll be tweaking that um, over time. But more so around where we are proposing to execute this thesis. Um, and I'll get in more of this later, but I, again, want to preface that we are not in the market. I can't point to specific deals. Uh, I can't point to specific successes around exactly what we are proposing. So in a sentence or two, what are we looking to do? And I'll actually pull from my uh, Twitter uh, feed or my Twitter profile. You know, we are trying to create, in effect, a search fund that from the start raises money like a startup and sets out to buy many low to no growth cash flow streams in the form of small businesses versus, as a search fund does, trying to find a single gem with growth potential. Um, investors will be receiving growing cash distributions over decades versus exiting via buyout or sale in five to seven years. It is not meant to be any type of fund. It is meant to be an acquisition holding company that will endure for years. So with that quick two-sentence overview out of the way, let's take a step higher up and talk about the maxims, if you will, that underpin much of this thesis. And there's, you know, five, six, or seven of these, and I'll try to run through them relatively quickly. But the first one is that the majority of attractive SMBs are attractive not for their future and presently unrealized growth potential, which is what I think you'll see a lot of search funds and private equity funds chase after, uh, but rather for their stability and reliable streams of cash flow. So as you'll see, as we talk more about our model, we're really focused just on assessing the durability um, of an existing cash flow stream, not so much uh, growth, uh, frankly, not growth at all. Second item, the law of large numbers is real um, and very powerful. And I'll quote the definition here, but the law of large number, uh, quite simply, is the average of a sample tends to approach the expected value as the size of the sample increases. This plays a very powerful role around returns as our entity scales, our capabilities broaden, and our execution improves um, over time. Third item, predictions and future state assumptions are most often wrong. 
So the things you put in Excel models and DCFs, you know, while it looks great and makes the numbers look good um, in cell Z50, um, they're usually wrong. Uh, so trying to minimize the range of probable future outcomes, in our view, is a more compelling way to control risk and increase your conviction in a particular investment. Fourth one would be that price most drives returns, full stop. I'm not sure there's much else to add there. It is critical when you're making an investment. If you can buy something at a lower price, uh, ideally with less competition, your likelihood and magnitude of returns is higher. This next one is probably pretty obvious, but important. Um, SMBs, and frankly, all companies, are populated by humans who are very complex emotional beings. Things unique about SMBs, though, is generally they're very small, obviously. Um, you know, anywhere from 10, 20, 50, maybe 100 um, employees. Effectively, you could call it a tribe. And when you're trying to meddle in a culture within an SMB, in our view, you're generally playing with some fire, both on the upside and downside. I mean, obviously, if there's levers you can pull to improve a culture, you know, the upside could be quite significant, but the downside is also uh, rather scary. Uh, trying to step in and force a different type of culture or mindset on an existing employee base can be quite dangerous. So in our view, the less meddling you can do, uh, the better uh, when you're acquiring an SMB. Next item would be that integrations are very hard and fraught with risk. Not only that, synergies usually you know, never materialize. Uh, there's a lot of risk involved with trying to smash two businesses, let alone 50 together. Uh, so again, in our view, um, don't do it uh, to the extent you don't have to. The last item, which I think is most interesting, and I will credit uh, a lot of this research or data points I'll cite to Verdad Capital, a very interesting, I think, public equities fund out there. Uh, but when you look at private equities heydays back in the 80s and 90s, um, the returns were phenomenal. Why? Well, I think you can bucket it. Well, excuse me. I, th I think you can put it in the two buckets. The one bucket, quite simply, there weren't many private equity firms competing back then. Um, it was a relatively new asset class. So by definition, with fewer competitors for a given asset, um, you're going to be able to buy assets at a better price and improve your odds for success. Second bucket, more specific around how private equity firms operated, you could you know, drill it down to three words. They focused on deals that were small, cheap, and levered. So you're looking at deals that were, say, in the low hundreds of millions of dollars. They acquired them for, you know, less than six times EBITDA, let's say. The cheapest 25% of deals back then accounted for 60% of in the industry's profits. They used high relative, low absolute leverage. Again, if you're buying a business for six times, you can put on three or four times debt. And it's not, you know, a ridiculous amount of, of uh, debt in an absolute sense. They bought simple cash generative businesses. They're frankly quite boring. Um, and, uh, you know, returns generally came from deleveraging, cost reduction, cost containment, not so much through growth or operational superpowers. So again, when we're thinking about our model, how can we sort of mimic that? Um, obviously not within the space where private equity plays today. There's again, too many competitors, but can we replicate that and in a smaller segment of the market in ways to allow us to achieve similar returns? So I won't touch on the market opportunity. I think most people listening to this podcast understand the demographic realities in the U.S. and frankly, in a lot of developed markets and even emerging markets around the world um, and how that affects SMBs. Um, I'll also say that, you know, a lot of what we're, we're talking about here and what we'll continue to talk about um, is, you know, high level. I'm, I'm not going into the deep weeds here. Uh, I'm not getting into every angle of how we're going to, you know, minimize risk here or there. Um, I'm not trying to make this into a uh, three hour monologue. Um, but uh, I'm happy to have a follow-up conversation or have discussions offline to get more into the details. I'll also add that what we're suggesting, you know, I, I don't want to make it again come out to seem like we're some kind of, you know, massively innovative um, group of individuals. 
Um, I'm no Elon Musk. There are companies out there who are effectively doing what we are suggesting in many ways, and they're gargantuan, many of them. Um, to highlight a few, uh, Constellation Software that I'm sure many people listening to this may be very aware of. Others in the Nordic regions, like an Indutrade, AdLife, AdTech, they all focus on acquiring very small, generally low-growth businesses um, and looking to slap them together in a decentralized manner. And again, these they've been around for years and many of them have multi-billion dollar market cap. So I'm not suggesting, again, where this is some wild, crazy, innovative idea where admittedly kindly stealing from many others who have forged the path before us. What, what are we looking to do? We aim to buy dozens of SMBs over decades defined, defined as those with 500,000 to 2.5 or maybe $3 million in free cash flow loosely defined. We are looking to hold them indefinitely. Uh, we don't intend to, at least early on, do much with the businesses once acquired. We are buying them because they're throwing off existing cash flow streams and we want them to continue as is. We have no interest in really fumbling around trying to improve things, which quite frankly, as touched on above, isn't always a simple, straightforward task. We're looking for businesses that are, again, as touched on, not growing or growing very little. We have no interest in investing in growth uh, post-acquisition, quite frankly. Uh, Growth is difficult, expensive, and downright destructive. And a lot of these SMBs uh, are small uh, for a reason, and most of them should remain small. Though I, I suppose you could say our goal is to make sure uh, they uh, do not get any smaller, at least in the near-term post-acquisition. Assessing the ongoing durability and consistency of an SMB's existing free cash flow underpins much of our underwriting thesis. Uh, but all in all, the value is really in the buy here in the sense that you know we are looking to buy these businesses, I would say, between 1.5 to 4 times free cash flow. So uh, you know, at a, anywhere from, say, 20 25% up to 50% free cash flows yield um, day one. With that in mind, if these businesses, again, these are not necessarily meant to be stellar um, growth businesses. If these businesses do unfortunately extinguish in say year seven to 10, theoretically, if we are buying them at two times, three times, three and a half times, um, we have hopefully by year seven or 10 recouped all of our investment and hopefully uh, some profit on top of that um, during that time period. In a lot of ways, we are looking to acquire businesses in runoff, which again, I'll cite Constellation Software as doing effectively that specifically within the vertical software space. Now, I know people will point out, well, Constellation buys vertical software businesses for on purpose, and that's why they can buy them in runoff because it's recurring revenue. So fully understand that, and hence our focus, not necessarily just in the vertical market software space, but on industries that are conducive to a recurring revenue-like um, revenue or you know cash flow stream, where ROIC positive and um, high quality ROIC is viable. I'm not going to suggest we're focused on one industry, at least early on. We want to keep that top of the funnel very wide to start um, to, again, lessen our competition, perhaps realizing, for example, the vertical market space, excuse me, the vertical market software space is quite crowded. Uh, But that's not to say over time as we find a niche or really build an expertise within a certain vertical, we don't go deeper. Uh, It's just not necessarily a focus for us. day one. And I would say lastly here for this general overview is that, again, we're looking to buy these businesses in a very decentralized manner, bringing them on board and not really meddling with them. Um, the idea is maybe we you know, pull some levers around the finance side of things, maybe infuse some tech here or there, but for the most part, not doing very much with them once we acquire them. We presume that over time, and I will not touch on this deeply at all here, but over time, that it obviously makes more sense to you know, once we have more resources and capabilities and staff to broaden out our capabilities and driving best practices and improving portfolio operations. But 
um, it's not something we're necessarily looking at um, executing uh, right off the bat. I think it makes sense to maybe touch on a bit more about who, the exact type of companies we are going after, uh, perhaps. And the way we're looking at it is, let's say we, you know, divide the market up of of SMBs between, you know, zero percent to one hundred percent. The top five percent of that market we call, say, gems. These businesses are generally very high quality. Uh, they're profitable. They have growth potential, but they're expensive and they're frankly infrequently sold. Probably pass to heirs most often. And if they're not, search funds and PE funds and strategics are going to be clamoring over these. The good, as we are calling them, is I would say the 70% to 95% range. These are cash generative, above average quality companies. Uh, they're sustainable, but they're probably not growing or not growing much at all. Um, and they're deficient in areas. So say customer concentration, so on and so forth. Uh, they're probably struggling to find acquirers or successors. And even if they do, trying to secure acquisition financing or liquidity, if you will, um, is quite difficult for the, for, uh, for the aforementioned reasons. Uh, the remainder, say 0% to 70%, uh, we deem you know the rest, if you will. And uh, these businesses are poor economics, unattractive industry dynamics, declining growth. They're usually going to be shut down by the owner once they retire or um, over the course of an economic cycle. So we feel the sort of garden that we're playing in, if you will, there's arguably far more targets and relatively few competitors, which plays up to the, you know, how I was thinking about investing more generally. Where can we play where very few people are? Uh, that's our goal here. And how can we structure uh, an entity that allows us to play in that market safely and scalably? Now, I'm not suggesting that just because we're playing in a different market here, everything's going to be so much easier. It's not. And we are very, very aware of that. Uh, but I will say that when we're looking at our quote margin of safety, we are relying not entirely so, but increasingly so on price paid um, and realizing we're only paying very low prices for these businesses. And that, again, we're taking a very large portfolio approach, far larger than a private equity firm, more akin to a venture capital fund uh, to where that law of large numbers kicks in and we can sort of um, diversify that risk across a wider base of assets. I do want to highlight one pushback that um, I found we get often. It's, well, why would any owner want to sell uh, their business to you so cheaply? And that's a fair point, uh, I suppose. And we've had conversations with business owners where something that absolutely has come up. Um, but quite frankly, individuals who are very so focused on, um, you know, price and maximizing their exit value uh, is quite frankly, really not the individual we want to buy from. Uh, so we sort of cast those opportunities aside. Uh, the owners that we have found more interested in what we're discussing and we think it's quite common, it's not necessarily a one off is a lot of these business owners, um, you know, they're, they've been in these businesses for years, 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, they just want to step back. They don't necessarily want to close it down. And the, the employees that they built relationships with are then out of business, um, you know, sorry, out of jobs. Their suppliers, uh, their customers uh, are then put in a difficult situation. They want to hand off the business in a way that allows them to exit gracefully, um, gradually in, in a lot of instances. If they can pull some money out, um, obviously that's fantastic. Uh, but they really want these businesses to endure um, and, and, and go on. And if they can find a home for that business, um, where they feel it's comfortable and it's not going to be messed with, frankly, uh, a lot, um, at least initially, uh, that's an exciting opportunity for them. So we're finding there are people that are that bite for this, and it's not necessarily always about the money. Um, these individuals, some of them aren't necessarily worth, you know, $20, 30000000 million, but they're also not broke. Um, and they have gotten to a point in their small communities, wherever they may be, that, you know, money's not everything. And the relationships and legacy that they're leaving is important. So up until now, you know, everything we're discussing is not terribly innovative. I can point to a lot of examples, be it large multinational 
billion dollar companies um, executing like this or a lot of very interesting, successful uh, smaller groups that I've been fortunate enough to come across and read about uh, here in the U.S. and elsewhere. Um, I, I will begin to touch on though two aspects of our approach, which are not off the wall, but they perhaps are a little bit different than what you'll typically see for some of these uh, SMB acquisition um, concepts in the market today. As I've done now a few times during our discussion, I will preface this next piece with uh, the idea that you know we are humble enough to realize that what we are about to suggest um, with, with regards to deal financing and how we finance the whole co-entity um, are a little off the beaten path. But again, we're, we're humble enough to realize that you know we need not take this route. Um, we are excited by this route. We think it's interesting. We think it plays particularly well for the segment of the market we're going after and our with, and, and also within the broader aims, what we're trying to do down the line. Um, but you know, th- there are more traditional, easier ways to go about doing this. Um, we are ultimately not looking to overcomplicate things more than we need to. Uh, simplicity is very important to us. So please keep that in mind as we're discussing here. How are we proposing that we finance these dozens of deals we're looking to do? I would say at least early on and in a sentence, we're looking to copy exactly how growth SMBs in emerging markets are often financed by way of a self-liquidating debt equity hybrid investment instrument. As mentioned earlier in the conversation, I lived in Southeast Asia and spent time attempting to build a online digital lender specifically within the SMB space. So I became quite familiar with a lot of the strategies around um, lending to SMBs from and again, a lot of, frankly, investment firms and alternative lenders since they're generally locked out of the financial system, particularly in uh, emerging markets. And the only real difference here is us taking this emerging market strategy instrument and applying it to developed market SMBs, where at least the ones we're targeting are low growth, slow growth, uh, and cash generative. Whereas often in emerging markets, uh, the target SMBs are not profitable, generally not cash flow to start, and are generally very fast growing. So there's a higher level of risk. So in our view, it's taking a creative model and putting it in a less risky environment. So you're probably wondering then, like, well, what are these instruments called? Um, we're calling them demand and dividend notes. And uh, we've also referred to them as self-liquidating preferred equity. Um, what do these specifically look like? And again, I'll keep things at a high level for the purposes of this discussion. Uh, but they are non-dilutive. There's no voting rights. There's no put option. Uh, they can be collateralized against any existing assets, however. They're entitled to a set percentage of quarterly distributable or monthly distributable free cash flow until a certain threshold is reached. Um, I would say it, typically it's anywhere from, say, 20% to 80% of that quarterly or monthly free cash flow uh, with an MOIC, multiple uninvested capital, um, of up to, say, 1.5 to, say, two times. That's what we are suggesting, by the way. In emerging markets, it's a little bit different. There's you know, they're not cash flow uh, generating in the first year or so, so there's sometimes a honeymoon period. But for what we're suggesting, 20%, 80% of that monthly, quarterly, distributable free cash flow up until, again, 1.5 to two times MOIC is achieved. Um, so right off the bat, you're getting payments on this instrument in month one or quarter one and de-risking that um, investment, uh, again, very, very early on. And we can make these distributions, if you will, largely, again, because we're buying these businesses um, at a relatively low multiple. So um, it's it's providing us a lot of cushion here to use, again, as touched on with the private equity methods of the 1980s, um, uh, you know, high relative, low absolute leverage um, and using a creative way here to um, 
lend to a business, frankly, small businesses where, you know, it's not a general electric where it's going to pump out consistent cash flow and you can predict it every quarter here. SMBs sometimes can be volatile. Uh, so if you have a lending instrument to where there's no covenants that can trip it up, uh, you, you have a lending instrument, frankly, that ebbs and flows with the business performance. Um, that's a superior uh, form of uh, capital in our view. And the investors in these notes are getting compensated for that given this high distribution and, you know, the ultimate MOIC here of 1.5 to two times um, invested capital. So over the course of five to seven years, these demand dividend note holders should be made whole. Last little piece I'll add is, is again, this is this instrument, this strategy is practiced in emerging markets. Uh, and, and it's not a cottage industry. There's, uh, you know, several billion dollars of capital being invested into these type of funds uh, and, and, and the vehicles. So um, I think the nuance here is taking it to the developed markets, but I'd also suggest there's, there's companies in developed markets who are doing something perhaps not exactly the same, but somewhat similar. Uh, for example, Alaris Royalty up in Canada. Um, it's tied to revenue. Um, so not necessarily free cash flow. So there's, there, again, there's nuances, but the, there, the, the, this model is used, um, in the market today. So again, we're not being massively innovative here with, uh, what we're trying to suggest. I suppose the area where we're trying to noodle out now with, 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 uh, potential investors is, well, well, how do you, you know, make this happen? Um, you know, conceptually it makes sense perhaps, but like, you know, how do you structure this? What does it look like from a, you know, funding capacity, um, if you will. The way we're looking at this, and again, always eager for feedback and, and, and thoughts here, is that on an individual deal basis, there's clearly risk um, here um, when you're financing a, a business, frankly, in general, uh, but particularly using this perhaps, quote, uh, you know, innovative or risky type um, of uh, investing instrument. However, uh, if you were able to raise a pool of capital here that is, you know, from the start meant to finance a portfolio of SMB deals uh, in this manner, Similar to say how a P fund or a VC, uh, a VC fund pulls capital and calls it as they identify investments, uh, we feel that this deal instrument, you know, becomes even more compelling. Uh, obviously, within a diversified portfolio. Now, um, you know, we're not suggesting we precisely do this, um, but you would be in effect raising a side private debt fund. Uh, you could argue that's specifically uh, designed and, and, and focused on financing um, our Holdco's uh, SMB investing activities. And it's also worth noting, by the way, that, you know, at a moderate level of skill here, I don't think it needs to be 50 SMBs, but 5, 10 uh, SMB acquisitions, um, this hold co-entity that's acquiring these um, these businesses would likely have the option to increasingly or completely transition off this effective, I mean, frankly, expensive uh, form of capital and move to more traditional sources of debt that can be directly tied to the hold co or at least guaranteed by the hold co on behalf of the portfolio companies. To close out this piece, you know, we, we're envisioning this type of financing usually representing anywhere from, you know, 50% to 70% of any given deal with a seller's note representing anywhere from, say, 10 to 30% equity to the extent you need it in a deal, which, you know, if you play around this in a model and you acquire these things, uh, these, excuse me, if you acquire these businesses at a relatively inexpensive price, you don't really need it in a lot of ways, but we are moving forward assuming that there will be some equity in each deal um, that would represent, say, anywhere from, 10 to 30% as well. Okay, so with the deal financing piece theoretically out of the way, well, how does this hold co-entity you know, stand up? How does it get started? How does it operate in the early years? Uh, I'll once again preface that this current thinking, um, you know, we don't rule out the possibility that there's an easier, more optimal route. Uh, but again, part of the reason we're sharing this is to, 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 to get that feedback, um, to get that pushback. So how do we finance this hold co? Uh, 
Well, before we jump into that, let's let's actually discuss well, how a search fund is generally structured um, to the extent that I understand it. A search fund will go out and they'll raise, say, 150, 200,000 to effectively you know, finance 18 months, 24 months, 12 months of searching. Now, some may call this a stretch, but you could argue that the search funder is effectively raising a pre-product, pre-seed venture round in a lot of ways day one. Uh, they're going to go out and do all this work and, you know, quote, build the product. And once they find the product, i.e. the SMB, uh, they're going to raise their seed round uh, to further execute. And of course, in reality, they're going to pair it with debt and so on and so forth. But, um, you know, in, in a lot of ways, it's not too dissimilar from an early stage venture investment. It is quite frankly, though, and also very importantly, nowhere near as risky as a venture investment. Since again, these search funders are going out to buy an existing cash flow stream. So assuming that's fair and correct and how a search funder raises money and executes there, why can't, you know, we take this same model and more or less copy it just at a larger scale? So instead of with the aim of, you know, buying one business and selling it in five to seven years, we're going to go right day one and say our aim is to buy dozens of these over decades. So right off the bat, the vision is far larger. So theoretically, you know, any upfront investment um, has a longer and much larger potential payoff. So instead of raising 150,000 or 200,000, let's right off the bat raise 500,000, a million. And we can then immediately not just have me sitting in my apartment trying to handle everything and be a one-man show, but let's go hire a team of three or four experienced, relevant individuals who are committed to building this business over the next X number of years, decades, optimally. Let's build you know a robust infrastructure uh, day one to really attack this opportunity intelligently and at a higher tempo than I could otherwise do um, as an individual. You know, you could set up an intern team or frankly, just an actual internal team of TA associate summit partner like cold calling uh, where you're just, you know, cranking those out day one. You have a really robust marketing apparatus. You can do webinars. Who knows what? Again, I'm not getting into all the specifics around what you'd exactly do to deal source. We'll save that for another conversation. But the idea here is that you're raising money to treat this as a legitimate long-standing business, just as you would when you're raising money to build an artificial intelligence startup that's meant to last and change the world. In a sentence, we are building a business to mechanize an opportunity to, to, to make the play actionable. Now, let's also realize, and I touched on this briefly above, that after acquiring a modest number of SMBs, say five or six, this whole co-entity should be able to self-fund uh, self rather early on. So, we raise that seed round, let's say, and get everything set up. Perhaps there's a series A after, you know, you hit a milestone, uh, you know, another million or whatever the number may be drops into the group so you can further build out the team. But at some point in the not too far future, um, if you're smart about how you're you know, operating a business, again, just as a startup needs to be mindful of its cash burn, um, you know, this entity who's acquiring existing cash flow streams at five or six or seven or whatever the number, whatever the number may be of SMBs, it's going to be self-funding at some point. So if you're an investor looking at this opportunity and putting down several million dollars day one to back a team that's going to buy existing cash flow streams out over the course of say 10, 15, 20, maybe 30, 40 years, you're looking at, you know, they're making 30, 40, 50, 60, however number of SMB acquisitions, you're looking at in aggregate 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollars of, you know, hold co aggregate free cash flow. For my investment that I've put down um, day one over the next 15, 20 years, um, assuming I stay in the business and I'm not bought out by the management team or some other outside investor, 
you know, theoretically, assuming distributions are coming out as well, you know, I'm getting multiples of my uh, initial investment. So again, the the you know, I guess the the real risk here, particularly early on, is on the execution. And if you really boil it down even more, it's like, can the entrepreneur, um, you know, recruit a team who can collectively work together to execute this thesis to build it out? The market is there. You know, tweaks to the approach are going to happen. So all the, you know, the deal financing or what type of businesses we're targeting, all I suggested, you know, that's always going to be open to somewhat debate. You know, you, you have to adapt. You have to be flexible when you're building a business. But broadly speaking, the market's there. The opportunity is buying these existing cash flow streams. It really comes down to execution risk and the team that's able to be brought together uh, to execute in this opportunity. So if, if I'm a seed investor, which I'm not, but and I'm not suggesting a VC, at least in a fund capacity, would ever or could ever look at this. But you know, for purposes of this example, on a risk-adjusted basis, there's really no comparison. Um, so, so the obvious you know, follow-on question here is, well, who is who is this investor that will invest in that? And that's exactly where uh, a lot of our time is focused today. And we're, we're getting a lot of good feedback, a lot of great traction here. So we're excited to continue to push down that path. To tie a bow around this, uh, you know, thesis here, uh, at least the, you know, the, the specific details around how we execute, um, how do investors get a return, uh, specifically the hold co-investors. And I, I think, you know, we're, we're not going to overcomplicate things here. I think it's pretty straightforward. Uh, the way we envision it, at least today, is through dividends, special dividends over time, perhaps not a set schedule, particularly not early on, as we want to reinvest a lot of the um, cash flow, the aggregate cash flow into additional deals. Um, and perhaps over time, there's investor buybacks. Uh, we would look to um, do you know tender offers or however you want to call it over time, where people can achieve some liquidity. Um, you know, if their timelines aren't necessarily you know 15, 20, 30 years. I will say that um, there is one additional liquidity option, which will lead into the last large chunk of our conversation here on this acquisition concept, and that would be a potential IPO in Japan. So I'm sure that jumps out to listeners first off um, as being what the heck Japan? Uh, well. Quite frankly, yes, absolutely Japan. Um, as I mentioned, I had lived in Asia and spent some time up in Japan and um, have been able to meet a lot of interesting people. I've learned a ton about the country, about the opportunity set there. Um, again, I have a personal connection there, I have family there. So, you know, in thinking about this opportunity um, over the years here and as it's evolved, quite frankly, the idea emanated from me thinking about it first and foremost in Japan, not necessarily the U.S. Now, that's not to say we aren't open to the U.S. Certainly we are. However, the opportunity set in Japan is immense. There's an overwhelming supply of SMBs versus a, you know, arguably almost non-existent pool of legitimate acquirers there, at least in our space. Um, the opportunity set is just extremely asymmetrical and far more in our view than in the U.S. So to the extent we have the option, uh, to the extent we had to choose, uh, I think executing first and foremost in Japan um, is absolutely uh, our number one choice. Why exactly Japan? At the highest level, and I touched on this in the beginning of our conversation, if you pick up the hood and look underneath in Japan, it's 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 a very different animal than I think a lot of foreign investors and foreign business people um, realize. Uh, you know, on the surface, yes, it's slow growth. You know, there, there's a demographic issue. The larger themes, they obviously do ring true. Um, however, there's aspects, there's pockets of the market where things are changing rapidly. You are seeing that in the venture capital ecosystem. Um, which is absolutely fascinating how it's growing and evolving. You're seeing that in how private equity is perceived and growing. Um, I can touch on that a bit as well. Um, you're looking at how the government in ways is really 
forcing public companies to change how they're you know engaging and treating shareholders. Immigration is slowly but surely opening up, and it's my personal view that over the next 20, 30 years, it's going to open up in a very, very big way. Um, so, you know, it's just to my earlier point as well, it's looking at overlooked markets. And in my view, Japan is overlooked in a lot of ways. And people just make these blanket assumptions. They don't really spend the time. They're not blaming them. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of opportunity out in the world. So you can only look at so many places, but I find Japan interesting personally, professionally, and digging underneath that hood and seeing what's there is, is just fascinating. Um, so at a higher level, um, that's sort of my pitch on people taking a closer look at, uh, what's really happening over in Japan and, um, what's on tap there. As it relates to SMBs more specifically, uh, I'll rattle off again, trying to keep things high level. I'll rattle off some, uh, a, a, a few statistics here that are pulled from the, um, Japanese Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry. Uh, that I think are really telling about the opportunity set there. So to kick it off here, you know, 50% of SMBs with owners that are over 60 years old are looking, but are, are unable to find a successor. So a huge swath of the market. Now, nearly 70% of SMB owners over the age of 70 are just quite simply not able to, to find the successor. Now get this 2.4 million SMBs greater than 60% of the total will be run by managers age 70 or older by 2025. So you're talking five years, 60% of all the SMBs are going to be run by managers 70 years or older, of which 70% today can't find a successor. Roughly half of the SMBs that do go out of business each year do so despite being profitable. Now, if this phenomenon goes on unchecked, that's estimated to be around 6.5 million jobs and roughly 205 billion dollars in GDP by again 2025. The average age of an SMB owner in 1995 was 47. Today it is 67. So stop there. I think just quickly hearing those numbers and those statistics, you realize that forget about the opportunity. Japan is facing a crisis, um, and you know it's it's scary and it's it's unfortunate. And I'm not trying to sit here and suggest that. I'm jumping up and down and giddy for that because it's not something to be giddy about. You know, it, it's a real issue that the country needs to deal with. And unfortunately, in a lot of ways, they, they really may not be able to, um, in the best way possible. And I'm also not going to suggest that us running over there buying SMBs, we're, we're going to be the savior. That's definitely impossible. Uh, we'll be a minnow in a giant ocean. If we all agree that, you know, the, the supply demand dynamics in terms of businesses, you know, it, it, it's highly skewed towards a significant supply. What are some other features of the Japanese market that make it compelling to pursue our concept over there? I'll rattle off a few other ones here. Broadly speaking, entrepreneurialism in Japan is not prized. You know, in the U.S., you be an entrepreneur, it's generally very sexy. It's very interesting. You know, if you fail, it's okay. Get back up and try it again. Japan, it's not culture. It's not like that. You know, you're graduating school. You want to work at a very, you know strong brand name sometimes, and this is changing a bit, but lifetime employment has been traditional in Japan. Um, you know, you're getting married, uh, the, your, your wife's, your husband's parents want to know where they're working. Is it reputable? Is it going to provide security? Uh, doing a startup or taking a swing at buying SMBs is just not in the thought process of most Japanese. So even if that opportunity exists, there's just not a lot of people that are going to see that, uh, and then want to jump and act on it. 
private equity is also not very developed relative to say China, China, Europe and the US. Um, it, it is fast growing, mind you. And the reputation is changing rather rapidly as well from, you know, barbarians at the gate to something a little bit more friendly, um, among businesses. And again, for them, I would say private equity, it's, it's really focusing on corporate carve outs these days. Uh, it, it's just a massive opportunity. You're seeing KKR, you know, even publicly state how excited they are about the Japanese market. So it's growing there, but it's not pervasive and it's absolutely not, um, you know, really even existing in the market segment we're looking at. Again, that 500,000, uh, around 2.5 million in free cash flow. There's no real private equity firm down there in large part because private equity firm probably can't operate at that level. Uh, it's just too much work for every given deal um, under the how a, you know, a typical fund structure works and the like. SMB owners um, and thinking about transactions and selling, uh, you know, culturally speaking, and you know, there's overlap a bit with the US. I'm not going to suggest they're drastically different, uh, but I would say more so than in the US, J- Japanese you know, business owners, particularly um, ones who are, you know, 70 years old, um, they're wealthy at this point. Um, they're not looking to maximize, you know, their dollar exit, generally speaking. The ongoing well-being of their employees, their suppliers, their customers is paramount. Um, and sometimes anecdotal evidence here is that, you know, these SMB owners even tell some of the strategics that acquire them, don't meddle with my company. Uh, I want it to go on as is. Um, I want it to be remain as independent as possible. Uh, they're not looking for it to be shoved inside of a large organization and subsumed into a bigger entity, generally speaking, which again plays into our sort of model here that we're decentralized. We actually have no interest in touching many of these businesses, particularly right after acquiring them. Keep on chugging. Um, over time, obviously, we'll try to iterate on those businesses and improve them. But broadly speaking, um, that's not our intention to really mess with things. Um, I'll also point out um, a couple of public stocks in the small business space, not acquiring small businesses um, in any significant way whatsoever, but advising them um, within their mergers and acquisitions transactions. And the one, the sort of leader in the space is Nihon M&A Center. Um, it is a $6 billion company that, again, effectively, I don't know the exact percentage, but is the preponderance of their revenue is is made in deal fees off of advising retiring business owners and selling their businesses, uh, generally to strategics uh, in most cases. Um, I'll you know touch on Nihon M&A a little bit more um, here at the end here, but just keep them in mind. I would also point out that, you know, probably everyone's aware of this, uh, listening to this podcast, but debt, um, interest rates in Japan are, you know, zero. Uh, it, it's incredibly cheap. So the ability to finance acquisitions and the like, um, it's, uh, if you're able to grab that capital, um, it's free <laughs> in a lot of ways. Looking at the, again, Japan in general and specifically this idea, but I'll comment more generally here. If, if you have a, if you're able to bring an entrepreneurial concept and energy to Japan, there's just a ton of overlooked opportunities that exist there. Again, in part because risk taking in many ways is not viewed as is is not viewed as positively as it is here in the U.S. Creative thinking, innovative thought, um, it's just not as common. Um, I, th- I would say, frankly, in Japan's history, it was not so much anymore today. Um, but if you can bring these mindsets, and you're not coming over there like a a bull in a china shop, you 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 you're coming over there looking for local partners. You're coming here very aware of the cultural nuances, but you're willing to take a risk. You're willing to put some risk capital down. And again, for our model, we don't really view it as terribly risky relative to say again a, a tech startup. But if you're able to take that entrepreneurial mindset and 
put that risk capital at play within an interesting space, the, the opportunity, the upside is gargantuan in a lot of instances, particularly again, because there's very little competition in some of these, um, market segments, SMB acquisitions, again, particularly in our space, uh, being one of them. So, you know, as a whole, taking all that I've sort of touched on above, we're just immensely excited about Japan. Again, myself, from a personal perspective, um, uh, my wife and I are eager and open and very excited to move back there, uh, quite frankly. So it checks a lot of box boxes professionally and, um, you know, personally as well. Give you a little background on IPOs in Japan very briefly. Uh, they're utilized rather differently than say in the US. Um, specifically in Japan and particularly in Japan, IPOs and public companies gain a, lot of, a level of credibility uh, that is, is very important in developing relationships with customers, suppliers, banking partners, and very importantly, uh, recruiting. And you got to realize recruiting in Japan is, is, is a very difficult task. There's, you know, far too many jobs um, and far too few applicants, um, broadly speaking. So to the extent you can have any advantage in trying to attract um, employees, uh, you generally jump at that. And being public, as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, there's there's an importance placed on being at a prestigious company, on having a brand name, um, so on and so forth. So having an IPO and being a public company, it provides you that credibility and allows you to be a, a little bit stronger of a, um employer in the hiring marketplace. Now, the other piece of the puzzle here, if you will, in terms of the IPO market in Japan that's, that's worth highlighting is... Japanese companies IPO very, very early. Um, and, you know, particularly in the venture space and tech startups, I'm not going to go into the details here, but it's, it's detrimental in, in, in a lot of ways because these companies will IPO after four or five, six years of being around and they're still in their growth phase and they chop off their investment in growth and to be profitable and sort of cut themselves off at the knees. So it's a whole other topic, uh, but it leads into the idea that, you know, there's not much growth capital. There's not much you know, the, the, the capital stack, if you'll outside of early stage venture, um, and a PE that's hundreds of millions of dollars looking at corporate carve outs, there, there, there's nothing in that middle range there, um, for a lot of these businesses. So that leads to the IPO market being a place for very small companies to raise capital. And you'll see on the mothers and Jazdaq, which are the stock exchanges specifically designed for venture back, faster growing, unique companies. The average uh, IPO proceeds are around, you know, $7 million. And, you know, I'm going to speak broadly here, but 3 million of that generally will go to, say, the company. Uh, 3 million of that will go to the leading shareholder. And about a million of that goes to the underwriter. So it's a really inefficient way to, frankly, even raise capital. Um, but nonetheless, you can IPO at a very young age and very early on in Japan. With one caveat being, though, that these businesses are often or excuse me, these stocks are often very illiquid. Uh, so it's not optimal um, in any sense of the word. However, let's step back and think about what we're looking to propose here. Uh, we're looking to buy cash generative small businesses for you know two, three times free cash flow. Let's say we buy five of these and we have four or $5 million in free cash flow. Um, we decide to take it public. Uh, you look at these venture back companies. You look at a Nihon M&A center, by the way, which, you know, again, advises SMBs on selling uh, themselves. It's a $6 billion company. It trades at, a, I think, a 65 times PE ratio. So let's play along here and assume that we IPO with $5 million in free cash flow. You know, it's not hard to imagine us IPOing at a 20, 30%, uh, excuse me, 20, 30 times PE multiple or multiple of free cash flow. So quite frankly, very overvalued. Uh, nonetheless, 
we're in the public markets now. We have a very expensive currency. Now we can do, you know, one of two things here. We can issue some equity to buy these small businesses. And that's very value accretive. Um, more than likely these older SMB owners do not want equity. They want cash. Um, but it, that's perfectly fine as well. Debt's very cheap. So we can finance these small acquisitions with, um, very cheap debt capital at the hold go. We can buy these bit, these cash flow streams. Say it's a million dollars for three times. Um, that million dollars gets dumped under the Holdco public company. And that cash flow stream is again, theoretically revalued immediately at 20, 30, 40 times. Um, multiple arbitrage here could be compelling, could be interesting. Um, we realize, you know, this is not something that's needed to, uh, for this thesis to work. This is not a focus of ours, but at the same time, if you play with this fantasy, if you will, it's not far fetched to look at a multi billion dollar company here over the next 10, 20 years. Um, all things considered, we're still very early on here. We're not in the market executing. I think that's largely because we are trying to explore the Japanese market more deeply before we kick things off, uh, here in the U.S. Um, and you know, I'm talking about IPOs and multi-billion dollar opportunities. And, you know, if that, if that happens, awesome. We'll, we'll obviously love that. Uh, but you know, we could have one, one hundredth of that, um, success and we'd be really happy and really proud of what we can do. And we think, you know, focusing on something simple, straightforward and acquiring basic businesses in Japan, uh, and just being very rudimentary and formulaic about how we go about doing it. Uh, we can be really successful. Um, you know, it's going to take, us having a local team there, um, me speaking Japanese, even if I were fluent and trying to buy businesses from a 70 year old, uh, businessman, that's never going to happen. So we're in conversations with, uh, you know, some very interesting and entrepreneurial groups and individuals over there to explore setting up in some type of partnership or joining us or some capacity to try to launch this concept and, uh, get it up and running in a way that makes sense culturally, uh, realistically, uh, and it's a win-win-win for everyone involved. So again, we're really excited about where we're headed um, and um, eager to in, you know, touch base with other investors, other business people, uh, peers out in the SMB acquisition space who would love to you know, talk about our concept, whether it's in the US, whether it's in Japan, uh, provide pushback, feedback, whatever um, on our concept. We're just really looking to build relationships, uh, socialize our concept, and hopefully get our feet running on this uh, again by mid-2020. How did your group come together and what are like, the backgrounds that you all came from and what kind of got you all on this similar path or mindset? So yeah, let me clarify a little bit about Golden Southeast. Um, so we are, we all met back again in 2013 or so originally. Um, a lot of them uh, helped me out on the uh, startup concept that we tried to launch over there um, again back in 2013 or so. It started out as an informal group. These guys have private equity backgrounds, um, you know, cor- corporate development at some of the largest companies in Thailand. And a lot of them are also very well connected down in that region. Um, so Again, we're not some formalized group. Uh, we don't have AUM under our belt or anything like that. We pull our own capital. We pull some capital from some local individuals down in Southeast Asia, um, who are, you know, very interested in what we like, what we like to do, what we look at and have been very, very supportive of us. So, um, it's, yeah, again, it, it, it's not some formal entity here that's, that's operating globally here. Uh, but we are a like-minded group that's very active and eager, um, you know, building a lot of different things. For instance, right now, uh, a core group of them um, over in um, Southeast Asia, and I'm, I'm 100% supporting them more on the strategy side and definitely on the capital raising side of things. Uh, they're actively building a early stage, but still already very successful RPA uh, startup, robotic process automation. It's really 
looking to own the Thai market, um, public company, uh, customers at this point looking to expand in, looking to expand to Indonesia over the next 12 months or so. So a lot of interesting stuff like that, uh, is, is, is still going on. But, uh, again, it's, I don't want to suggest we are some, uh, formal firm. It's, it's definitely more of a loose association of like-minded individuals we've teamed up, stayed close and are attempting to formalize our efforts. But, you know, it's easier said than done, uh, at least from where, uh, we're standing today. So then the issue with starting off in Japan and not doing the U.S. strategy first before going to Japan, is that mostly a fundraising issue, if I'm understanding it correctly? So I wouldn't say that fundraising is the biggest issue for the Japan um, angle. Um, I'm not saying it's all so easy. We don't have money sitting in our back pocket. But I would say the more pressing and difficult challenge is understanding how we execute there. Again, there's cultural nuances. Um, there's a level of education that likely needs to go on, uh, particularly for the model we're proposing. Um, it's trying to find, frankly, partners to help execute. Uh, even if I were absolutely fluent in Japanese, there's no way I could go to a, a regional town in the countryside of Japan or in Tokyo or wherever and um, have a seven-year-old Japanese businessman sell his company to a gaijin, a foreigner in Japanese. Um, it's just not going to happen. So there absolutely needs to be a local team in place. Uh, so we are, again, talking to uh, various entrepreneurial um, groups and individuals in Japan today to explore that angle, to see if there's a way to work together and understand what structure will work. Um, how can we set it up that um, uh, is a win-win-win for everyone involved? And Again, it's, I'm not going to say we're, we're launching tomorrow, but we are in, in, in some nice conversations and we are very optimistic about where we're headed. And we do, uh, we are hopeful that, uh, you know, not too far along here, mid 2020 or so, um, things do kick off. Uh, so it's an exciting opportunity here. Um, but, uh, again, to answer your question more directly, fundraising is, I'm not going to say it's, an, it's, it's, it's a non-issue, but we are finding, um, you know, some interested parties, both in Japan and here in the U.S. that uh, we're looking to continue conversations with and see if it makes sense to pull everyone together, um, you know, work with X, Y, or Z. Who knows? We'll see. But, uh, you know, things are looking up. I want to ask you really quickly about, about Twitter, actually. I think we got connected originally over Twitter. Kind of curious how you've used it so far and how you've, if it's been a good uh, way for you to meet other investors or similarly like-minded people, just, just tell me about your use of Twitter and how it's how it's been for you. Yeah, sure. So it's interesting. I, I joined Twitter by 2009. I don't know when it was founded, but I think that was pretty early on. And I really didn't touch it from 2009 until 2018 at some point. Um, and I think I was dabbling in it then, um, sort of getting back in the swing of posting stuff. I have really no idea what I was posting, probably deleted them at this point, but Random stuff, I think. For some reason, I would say late 2018, early 2019, I, again, for some reason I can't remember, just started jumping on. Um, and obviously being interested in stocks and, you know, investing and private equity and all that good stuff, just started digging around, uh, following certain people, reading more, connecting with more with, with, or excuse me, not connecting, but following more and more people. And I just found that the, frankly, what I was picking up, the tidbits, the, Documents shared, the argue, the articles that were being shared was just really high quality. Um, I, I had this view of Twitter as, you know, a, a joke, you know, it's you post random stuff on there or whatever, but this FinTwit community that I've, I've now, not, not sure I can call myself a member yet, but that I've definitely dove headfirst into, um, the quality, um, for the most part is, is fantastic. 
And if you're smart about who you follow and you're, 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 you know, an, an engaging member of the community, if you will, I found that everyone's been really very nice. Uh, there's tons to learn, tons, tons, tons to learn. Um, and seeing how much people were sharing, um, sort of got me thinking about myself, like, well, you know, I'm probably not as smart as most of these people on here, but there's no better way to, you know, learn more and, you know, get better connected with people than start sharing some of my own thoughts. Um, so I started slow, I guess, and just started putting different thoughts out and over time gained more confidence in what I was writing, um, putting out there. And I'm sure most of it is still, um, ramblings that most people ignore, but, uh, uh, at least for myself, um, it, it's been a great way for me to express some of my thoughts, to get pushback, to get feedback, um, to, you know, in the reply section, engaging with other very intelligent, successful people, um, not just on, you know, small businesses or whatever, but in stocks and whatever else. And it's just been really great to make, um, you know, I would call them at least digitally for now, um, increasingly friends in a lot of way. Um, I obviously hope to expand some of this to in-person meetings with, with someone like yourself and a lot of others, but, uh, I've, I've definitely tried to use it as a way to, um, not only, you know, get my own thoughts out there, um, and, and, and better build my own reputation, um, among investors and colleagues and peers, if you will, in the investment community. Um, but, but again, more so to, I would say, get under the hood of a lot of different theses or, for example, in Japan, it's following a lot of, uh, venture capitalists or private equity guys or, you know, whoever it may be over there where, I'm able to get inside takes on this or that, that, you know, reading the Bloomberg or a general Forbes article, whatever it may be, I'm just not going to get, uh, and then be able to follow up with those individuals and again, build relationships via email or direct messages or phone calls. It's just been invaluable. So whenever I talk to someone about Twitter, um, I have only best things to say about it. I'm still feel like I'm learning my way around it, still trying to get, you know, better at how I use it. Um, but I recommend anyone you know, out there, whether I'm meeting them or whether they're listening to this to, uh, absolutely get on, stay on, um, join the community. Um, everyone, you know, has a right and should share what they have. And the best way to learn is to get out there and give it a swing. So, uh, it's been great. Uh, and, uh, I've loved it so far and I look forward to getting deeper and deeper into the, uh, FinTwit universe. It's Im- impressive, Dick, the, the, the variety of people who's on Twitter too. Like it's not just like to your point earlier about Twitter seeming like a joke at first. Like there's some really serious people on there who are who are posting their research and contributing a ton. I'm usually, you know, I'm, I'm perusing on there. I will see. I love playing in the. I love playing in the. Uh, well, I shouldn't say playing. I love you know exploring the replies. To me, that's where you get really into the in-depth conversations. Uh, you get to really see how insightful people are. Um, you know. You get the, all, all the nuances about a thesis or about a stock or about, you know, market or about an opportunity, uh, or an article or whatnot. So if I see someone, you know, put a really interesting thread, uh, or reply or back and forth, that's generally where I'll, you know, find a lot of interesting people to follow. Um, it's sometimes digging into, uh, some like yourself. If I see that you're liking certain people, um, or you're following certain people, I'll dig into, people that I really admire and like what they're sharing. I'll look into their followers and, you know, peruse, if you will. Um, so, you know, I, I, I can spend hours on Twitter. I have to actually limit myself, um, to how much I spend on there. But, um, I would say it's more fortuitous, serendipitous in terms of, uh, who I come across and who I end up following. But, um, I am trying to take a little bit more of a concerted approach to, uh, 
who I'm following and the like. Because uh, to your point, you know, having a higher quality feed where you can be a little more concise, you can, you can engage a little more deeply, uh, and just have a higher bar of quality over what's coming through your, you know, your your feed. It's uh, perhaps saves, it saves you some time when you're perusing, as I do, for uh, probably too much time. If you could go to college as a professor and teach a class about any subject you wanted, what would you teach and why? So that's a really great question. Um, I'm going to have to actually suggest two. The first of which would be personal finance. Um, ever since I was frankly in high school, I was wishing there was personal finance uh, back then. It's just so critical, I think, to um, you know younger people and trying to get on their feet after college, in particular, uh, to know you know how to budget so they can pay down their student debt or not carrying a credit card balance if at all possible what's a mortgage and how does all that stuff work Um, it seems basic perhaps to some but to others it's a foreign language and i think having that knowledge instilled into someone is i'm not going to argue you know necessarily that that it's better than reading william shakespeare but let's just say it's at least equal uh and uh you know i think it's frankly quite critical so if i were to teach a class. I think that would be the number one option I would go back to do. The second one I would say would be creative thinking. And I know that's sort of a, an amorphous blob of a topic there, but uh, it's just absolutely critical in terms of how I've ended up where I'm at today. Um, I know when I was in school, I was uh, heads down, quite frankly, looking back, memorized, get the straight A's onto the next, onto the next, onto the next, um, like a machine. And I never, when I was younger, really built up that creative muscle, never really f- built up the, you know, uh, the frankly nerve to sort of step outside the box in, at least in how I think, um, I forced that over time accidentally and purposely in a lot of different ways to where I now, you know, it's, it's absolutely invaluable. The curiosity I have, the things that I read, the things that I come across and how I'm able to, you know, pull that together, um, and, 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 and come to interesting concepts, most of which are off the wall and are stupid, but some of which do stick and are interesting. So building up that muscle, I think, at a younger age. Um, so, you know, in terms of a class, I don't know how it would necessarily work out, but writing fiction, short, short stories, um, writing poetry, uh, startup ideas, and just, just really getting people to not be afraid of thinking big, saying big, and, um, you know, stepping outside their comfort zones, again, and how they perceive the world and their role in it. In high school, I gave a speech on personal finance classes and how we should have them in high school. Um, so that's that's a topic that's dear to my heart. What's a belief you had early in your career that you've that you held strongly that you've since relaxed or changed your view on? Hmm, that's a good one too. I would say uh, the definition of success. Um, I grew up thinking that success, quite frankly, was trophies, accolades, money, if you will. And I was in my early Wall Street career ready to sacrifice what I now consider success for that type of success, for the money, for the accolades, for the title, for the image. I quickly learned that it is not at all worth it. Um, it is quite, at least, again, this is my perspective, so I'm not necessarily judging anyone else, but for me, um, it was not fulfilling. Um, I saw the future um, in some colleagues and it did not look interesting. It did not look, it did, it did not look bright. Which frankly was a bigger reason why I jumped to Asia, um, was to, uh, you know, chase, if you will, something that deep down meant a lot. Um, wanted to explore, felt that that was my quote business school, if you will. How do I think about success today? You know, it, obviously I want to be successful in my career, but I want to do it in a way that 
is interesting, that is enjoyable with people that are friends, that are people that are interesting, that people I'm learning from, that people are nice, that are ethical, uh, that, you know, are creative, that, you know, bring, bring more to the table. Um, uh, it's, it's having healthy relationships. It's having a healthy relationship with yourself mentally and physically. Um, success is just, it, it's really all encompassing, uh, if you will. So for me, it's tough to peg it down in the one thing, but it, it's, it's, it's a constant motion forward, um, in all aspects of your life, uh, and realizing that, you know, balance isn't always possible. Um, and sometimes you got to sacrifice that balance, but over the long run, um, you know, you got to make sure you're filling up the gas tank, uh, if you will, um, on all sides of yourself. And I, and I think, uh, if, if, if you can go through life, Knowing that you, you know, loved hard, uh, you tried hard, you swung the bat, um, you may have failed. Things may have not worked out as, as you hoped, but, uh, you'll look back without many regrets theoretically. So that's why I try to live and that's why I sort of look at success today. What's the best business you've ever seen? Hmm. The best company. Well, the one that's jumping out, uh, quite frankly, I guess, cause we're, we've been talking about, our uh, concept here is uh, Teledyne, uh, run by Henry Singleton. Um, I don't have all the facts perfectly now because I haven't read about him in a while. Um, you know, I was back in my biography phase uh, in my 20s. I was going through biography after biography. I could quote half the books. But uh, at a higher level, uh, you know, Henry Singleton um, at Teledyne had an overvalued stock back, I think, in the 70s, if I'm not mistaken. And use that stock to acquire a lot of cash generative smaller businesses, uh, and put it under a broader conglomerate umbrella. There was very value accretive using such an expensive currency in the stock market to buy again these cash generative businesses at a lower multiple. Lo and behold, I don't know, I think again, I don't have the exact dates, but in the eighties, nineties, let's say everything flipped. The conglomerate fell out of favor. Stock price dropped, multiple dropped. And instead of continuing as he was doing, in uh, empire building, he sort of did the opposite and started eating himself. And by that, I mean um, taking that cash from these subsidiaries and acquiring a stock aggressively through tender offers and such to where I think, and again, I could be wrong in the number, but 70, 80% of the stock um, outstanding over the course of 10 or 15 years, uh, he bought back. So if you look at their stock price, it was, I mean, I, I believe almost like vertical over those 25 years. So, you know, it's obviously not a Facebook in terms of growth or anything like that, but uh, particularly as it relates to what we're looking to do, it's a it's a huge inspiration. Uh, particularly when you you know you touch on the idea of taking taking this concept public in in, in Japan and realizing there's a lot of uh, levers you can pull to drive value, uh, um, just as uh, Henry Singleton did. So, uh, lots of good businesses out there, but the one I think that just stands out from our conversation would be a. Uh, Thanks for coming on the show, Will. I've loved having you on. Your Japan thesis is fascinating. I'm excited to track it over the next few years. Appreciate it, Ox. Uh, thanks so much. I love what you're doing and uh, look forward to keeping track to many more uh, you know, podcasts that you put out and uh, other posts that you share moving forward. Uh, it's really great stuff. Thank you again. Uh, thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. For more information, including show notes, transcripts, and other links, please visit alexbridgman.com.